to 1 Peter in the second chapter. I'm going to give a quick review of chapter 1 because as I was just listening to 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning, I was a little overwhelmed because he says quite a bit. But I want to kind of give you the cleft notes version of it. I want to bring it down to the main theme. Peter is revealing to these believers, and I've said before that this is a dispersed group of Jewish Christians. But if we, as we get into chapter 2, we're going to find out that these, some of these people were not Jewish to start with. They were actually Gentiles. And he's in, the, the, you know, in um, Galatia. He's in Cappadocia, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, Bithynia, Pontus. But all these places are surrounded and filled with Gentiles, people that are outside of the covenant that Israel had with God. And so he's writing to them too. So this is this scattered group of believers that are trusting Jesus, that some of them used to be Jewish followers of tradition and religion and and the Old Testament, and some of them are actually people that came from pagan idolatry. But the reality is he writes to both of them that God is blessed and he is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his abundant mercy, verse 3, has begotten us again to a living hope. So he's begotten us again. We've been born again, not just of water, but of water and the Holy Spirit. And because of this new birth, we have a living hope. And I talked about before how this hope that we have is not, I hope this takes place, or I hope I get into college, or I hope, you know, all these, we're really just making wishes. But the idea is, is that our living hope is in Christ, and our hope is something that will be fulfilled. It's not an if, it's when. And so if God's promised it, he will make it come to pass. So he says he's begotten us again to a living hope, in verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And look at this, to an inheritance that's incorruptible and completely undefiled, that does not fade away, and it is reserved for you in heaven. So we have an inheritance. And this inheritance is a living hope in Jesus Christ, our high priest, and it is kept for us. We don't have to protect it. We don't have to insure it. We don't need to make sure that it's going to be there. And and we don't need to make sure that we we don't spend it all before we get there, kind of like we do with retirement. I got to make sure I save and I got to make sure I, I plan. All those things are good and it's a good stewardship. But the idea is this inheritance that we've been given is kept for us by God. And it is incorruptible, won't rust. It's not like money. When you put it in the bank, it could lose value, even though you never really think about it that way. The dollar doesn't go as far 10 years from now as it does right now. So the reality is our inheritance has been procured for us, and it is kept for us. So if everything in our life was taken from us right now, except for our very life, the breath in our lungs, even the very breath in our lungs, if it's taken from us, This inheritance that he's talking about here, it's kept for us. We get it. Nothing can take it away. It's there. And so that is our hope. Our hope is not in just the perfect family situation. Our hope is not in our health always remaining what we are comfortable with. 
Our hope is not in the 401k actually producing positive gains instead of losing like it did back in the, in the late 2000s. You know, those things can all be taken from us, and history shows that. But our hope in Christ, that fulfillment that is to come, is coming, and nothing can take it away. It's kept by the power of God through faith. And so he says, in the meantime, you greatly rejoice though now, in this hope, though now, for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. He's writing to the early church around 64 AD, and it's not that they are not experiencing various trials, it's that they are. And they're not the trials that you and I think of. They're not... Um, they're things that we're, even the government is persecuting them for your faith, their faith. And if you think that we've been persecuted for our faith in the last 20 years, we have not. No one has ever taken a big long stake and driven it up your hiney all the way up through your neck and covered you in tar and pitch and burned you in public. No one. You never even had that threat. So if you think that we have a threat because government officials or whatever, no. It's nothing like what Peter's talking about. The, the trials for their faith were life-threatening. They were livelihood-threatening. They couldn't get jobs. They were literally, because they're in Pontius de Galatia and all these nations that I just listed because of persecution. Not because their job moved them. Not because their family moved, but because of persecution. They were life-threatening, these Christians. And so Peter says, count it all joy. James writes that, but then Peter says, in this, you can rejoice. You can actually be excited because it's fulfillment of what God said would happen. In this life, you will suffer persecution. That's what Jesus said. And this life is not meant to be comfortable. It's meant to make you long for heaven because of sin and everything that goes along with it. And so chapter one, to review, Peter writes to them about living in hope And then last week we studied living in holiness to please the one who bought us back, the the one who redeemed us. You ever heard the word redeemed and thought, what does that mean? We've been redeemed, and in their day, if you were a slave and you were going to get out of slavery, somebody had to pay for you to buy your freedom so then you could do whatever you wanted. But they would buy your freedom with gold or silver, and what Peter writes to these is that you've not been redeemed with gold or silver, which perishes. You've been redeemed with the very blood of the living God, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Your freedom was purchased. Now think about this. We value things on how much we're willing to pay for them, right? So if someone's willing to pay one million dollars for a Maserati, we go, wow, it must be good, right? Because it cost a million dollars. Or if you buy your house, we pay for it what we think it's worth to us. If you buy a side-by-side or a mower or gasoline, it's worth to you what, it's, what you're willing to pay for it. Now, some of that stuff we just have to buy. We don't really get a big choice in how much you know, gas is going to cost what it costs. I still got to get where I got to get. But think about that from God's perspective. How much are you worth? Jesus 
told us how much we were worth by how much he was willing to pay for us. How much was he willing to pay? His own blood. Not somebody else's blood, but his blood, which Peter writes here, he was the lamb that was slain without blemish and without spot. He had no sin. He didn't have to die for his sin. He died willingly for our sin. And he was chosen to do this before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times to you and I. The prophets, they were looking for the day that God would send the deliverer, the Messiah, the Mashiach, and it never came. And they longed for the fulfillment of the prophecy in the Old Testament. God's going to send you a deliverer. He shall be called, Isaiah says in chapter 9, Mighty Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the government will be upon his shoulders. So they were looking for this Messiah, and yet to them, they never had it revealed. They died before they saw the fulfillment. Did that mean that God didn't love them? No, that just meant it wasn't time yet. And yet, uh, even we looked at in chapter 1 that the angels hear about this salvation that God has planned. They watch it. They look at us and they go, wow, God cares about them. The angels who are in the presence of God are in awe of the salvation that God has wrought for us. And so that being said, he says in verse 22 of chapter 1, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, and there is purity for us when we will, when we allow God's will to be done through us, he says, whosoever will may come. We have to be willing participants in salvation. So God foreordains it. He procures it. He does everything to give us everything that we need to be reconciled or redeemed, bought back from slavery, reconciled in our relationship with him. But we have to be willing to receive it, right? And so he says there, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, you, have, you play a part, you play a role in obtaining purity for your souls simply by obeying the Word of God, but with the power of the Spirit helping you to obey. In sincere love of the brethren, he says, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born, since you've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. So, with all of chapter 1, he says, so stop trying to live for your glory, making yourself something, but instead start living for something that will never be taken from you and will always be there. That's the glory of God. He says, all flesh is as grass, all of the glory of man, as great as it can be, is as the flower of the grass. And here in a couple months, the flower of the grass, they're beautiful. But what's going to happen? Summer. Actual summer. Not rainy, but instead 90 degrees and dry. And what's going to happen to those beautiful flowers that we spend all our time just watering them and taking care of them and cultivating them, weeding them? They're going to fade. And then comes fall. And then comes winter. They'll die. So in the same way, he says, all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. Guess what? The grass withers, its flower falls away, but what's going to remain? The word of the Lord. 
Nothing. Not even the hottest sun can, can make the word of God no longer of effect. No persecution, no heat, no squeezing in life can choke out the word of God. Its fruit will remain forever. So now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, sometimes chapter headings can get in the way of the continuity of a passage. But in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious." So in chapter 2, he turns the corner in some ways, and he says, here's the deal. If God has done all of this to save you, and he's prayed, played this, excuse me, paid, I'll get there, this precious price for your salvation, for your redemption, you've been bought back from slavery, he says, therefore, in light of all that he has done, really, our response is out of gratitude. I read chapter 1, and I listen to it over and over again, And I start to go, wow, look at all that God has done. And he hasn't asked me to do anything other than obey and trust. So in chapter 2, he asks us to do something that some of you might think, well, that's no big deal, I can do that. But I don't look at it that way because my heart is deceitfully wicked. And so when he says, therefore, in light of all that's been said, lay aside all malice. Now, I had to look up the word because I don't know what malice means. I get the general idea that it's not good. Otherwise, God wouldn't say, lay it aside. He doesn't tell us to put down things that are good for us. Sometimes he calls us to lay down things that we think are okay for us. And he says, no, that's not good for you. But he says, lay aside all malice. He says it in the text context. He says, therefore, laying aside all malice. So this is something we could, should consistently be doing. Today, tomorrow, the day after? Yes, all of those days. It should be a practice, laying aside all malice. But again, what does that mean? Well, it means ill will. It means evil intentions. Now, we spend all of our time dealing with our actions, and that's not a bad thing. But God says you need to deal with your heart from which all your actions flow. So he says, laying aside all evil intentions. That's hard to do. Because we have to do things and then go, where was my heart on that? Was I really doing that with the right heart? Or was I doing it in hypocrisy? How many times have you heard somebody say, I would go to church, but there's too many hypocrites there. And we're quick to say, come join us. And we should. We should actually, not just in word, but say, yeah, I am a hypocrite. But the other side of it is, uh, we shouldn't be hypocrites. Our desire should be to become, as we grow in the Lord, less and less of a hypocrite. We shouldn't find ourselves saying things that we don't mean. We shouldn't find ourselves just playing a part and then expecting people to believe it. People can see through that stuff sometimes. And sometimes they think they can, but you've changed. You know, that's the other side of grace, that sometimes we have changed. We try to reflect that with our actions and our heart and what we say and, and people haven't seen it because they haven't seen us do it long enough. But here in this case, he says, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit. What is deceit? Trying to deceive someone. Who does that? The father of lies deceives people, not the father of heaven. 
not our Heavenly Father. So we should reflect the Father that we actually follow. If we're deceiving, then we're actually following Satan. Um, He says, laying aside all evil intentions, all deceit, all hypocrisy. In other words, saying one thing, doing another, acting one way, but really having a heart that's this way. And then he says, and all evil speaking. So the words that you say, speaking evil of others, whether they're your enemies or not, he says, lay aside all evil speaking. And I looked up the Greek. No, I didn't really, but I always say this. I looked up the Greek, and the all word there means all. So not just some of your evil speaking, but all of it. And that's hard because we think of evil speaking, we think of the, the four-letter bombs. I, didn't, I don't cuss, so therefore I'm not speaking evil. But speaking evil is cutting down someone's character by your words. And you can say all you want, sticks and stones may make, break my bones, but names can never hurt, but they do. And if you've ever had names said about you, you know that it hurts no matter whether it's true or not. Evil speaking, speaking evil about someone, whether it's true or not, damages them whether they hear it or not. Oh, it's so painful. And to see the people that continue to walk in carrying this weight, it hurts because Jesus set us free from our sin. And so uh, I think that... uh, evil speaking and deceit. And he he says, lay these aside and instead as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Gracious means to be full of favor. Gracious means to not get what we deserve. Excuse me. Gracious means to get what we don't deserve. And so to speak graciously about somebody is to find something that you do like about them and say that about them. Don't say the mean stuff, but even if it's true, withhold that and say the things that are true, that are good. Everyone in your life, everyone in your life has something good about them, where they reflect the character of God, where they've done something that benefits others. You can build them up by focusing on the thing that is good and just praising them for it. Do that for your fathers, by the way. Do that for your dads. They have guilt. They have shame, just like everyone does. Think about the things that you know about yourself that other people know about you. I don't care who you are. We all carry shame about stuff that we wish we would have done better. And as much as it is hard to not, we we focus on the negative because we want to fix it, but sometimes we focus on the negative because we can't see any positive. One of the things we need to work on is seeing the positive in people. Everyone has something that they've done that benefits others. So praise them for it. They won't expect it. They're expecting you to call out their faults because they think about them all the time. Now, there are some people that don't, but most people remember all the stuff they've done wrong, and they just carry it around, and they carry it around. They go, there's no good in me. But one of the things that marriage has done for me is, is that. My, I'm, I beat myself up constantly, and my wife builds me up by saying the things back to me that she sees that I do good. 
One of the ways that I'm trying to build up my children instead of telling them all the time, this is what you're doing wrong, which is my tendency. I see problems, call them out, trying to deal with them. But the other thing is, I, they're doing some pretty great stuff for a three and five-year-old. Great job being patient with your brother. I'm not patient with your brother. That's convicting to me. Good job. High five. Celebrate the exciting stuff that isn't normal. Patience. Joy. Love. It doesn't come naturally. That's a gift of the Spirit. Celebrate it. Celebrate the stuff that's not a big tournament win. Celebrate the stuff that's the daily win. And it makes life a lot more fun. It makes it more enjoyable. And so um, I'm, I'm done with that for a moment. So I just, I think that's something we need to dwell on. He's, he's not telling us to lay aside things um, because he wants to give us a list of stuff not to do. He's saying, you're naturally going to be doing these things already. I don't care who you are. So let's make a practice of laying these things aside. They're not rights of ours anymore to keep. But then he says, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Eat the word of God. It's the bread of life. It's what sustains us. It's what grows us. It's what gives us strength in our being. It makes us, what you feed on makes you who you are. If you eat junk food, you're not going to be in good shape physically or spiritually. But if you eat the pure milk of the word, you watch babies that, that are fed the right diet, man, they grow quick. They get those chubby little cheeks and big huge thighs and they just get that fattiness that babies need to have because they're going to fall here shortly and start walking and they're going to beat up against the table. And the word of the Lord is that for us. Not only does it sustain us, not only does it lead us to salvation and convict us, but it also makes us grow and it makes us healthy as believers. You won't have to look for blessing for others. You won't have to look for grace for others because you'll daily be kind of ruminating and soaking in it yourself and go, man, God loves me. How can I be like this to other people so they can know that God loves them? It's not by criticizing them. It's going to be by loving them despite all the junk. That's what Christ has done for us. How can we not just in gratefulness do it for others? So, if you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, um, desire the milk of the word. So in chapter 1, he says, with the Spirit's power, we need to grow in holiness. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, that growth in holiness will come by the word of God feeding us and making us healthy. And then in chapter 2, verse 5, he continues, well, he says in verse 4, coming to him, Jesus as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, he's speaking to the people he's writing to, but I want you to think about this. You also, and I'm going to include myself, but when I say you, I mean us. Us also. He says, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, 
The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, in this context, I want to read to you in Matthew chapter 21. What is a cornerstone in a building? Now, you, those of you that are in construction, you know it's the, the, the stone that's hewn, and it's placed at the corner of the building, and everything else is built from there. So it has to be cut right. And if it's not right, everything else in the building will be out of square. Now, if you're in construction, you know that there's never been a building that's been exactly square because it just doesn't happen. But I think in some cases, it's just because the corner was not done correctly. But that said, every point from the corner all the way out, if the corner's out, everything else is out. And it's out a little bit at the corner, then at the other end of the building, it's way out. And so if we're not tied directly to the cornerstone of our faith, Jesus, then it may not be a big difference at the beginning, but the end result will be far off. So if Jesus is the cornerstone, if he's our foundation, then we need to build our lives upon him as if it matters, because it does. And so he says in Matthew chapter 21, and I stopped turning pages because I got distracted. But Matthew chapter 21, he quotes this same set of verses in verse 42. But first and foremost, we're going to read the parable of the wicked vine dressers, verse 33. Jesus speaking says, Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. He dug a wine press in it, and he built a tower, and he leased it to some vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when the vintage came, the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So in a, vi- in a vineyard, you can't just let it grow, walk away, and come back when it's time for harvest. It takes a lot of effort and maintenance and trimming and cutting and pruning and, and all the thing and weeding. So they would do this while he was gone in a far country, and he gets a portion as part of the lease of the grapes. So he sends servants back to receive his portion of the fruit, and it would be a percentage. And when he sends them, look what happens those vine dressers that did all the work, they beat one of the servants, killed one, and they stoned another. So they took the owners, he's the owner of the vineyard, and they killed his servants, stoned them, and beat the other. So verse 36, again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. And then at last, all he sent to his, excuse me, then last of all, He sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. Verse 38, But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Here's our opportunity. He's the one that's going to get the vineyard afterward. If we kill him, we get to keep the whole thing. So, come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him, they cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine dressers? 
I know what I would do. What would you do? Put yourself in the place of the owner of the vineyard. You wouldn't be infuriated. You would be incensed. You would be so upset that you would come snarling even if you were not one prone to violence. He's been very patient, the vine dresser. Did you notice that? After they killed my first set of servants, I'd be showing up. But he gave opportunity. He gave grace. He sent another set of servants. Now for the servants, not such a blessing. But for the vine dresser, he doesn't want to take it to that next level. So when he finally sends his representative, his son, they take him outside of the vineyard and they kill him. Now, verse 41, they said to him, he will destroy the wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. He'll find other vine dressers. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So, Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind them into powder. So this stone, this son, the heir of this vineyard, essentially, he was killed. But the parallel is between this vine, this vineyard, which was owned by the owner, and Israel itself. Israel is the vineyard. And the vineyard was getting out of hand, and God sent his servants to get the fruit, the fruit of repentance, the fruit that would glorify him. And when he sent his servants, those who were vine dressers, in this case, he's speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes, they wanted to inherit the kingdom for themselves. And so they said, you know what? Let's kill this son, and then we can be in charge instead of him. So they took Jesus outside of the city gate and they killed him. And when they killed him, they said, all right, now it's all ours. Except they didn't know that killing Jesus, they made him the chief cornerstone. He, they fulfilled the prophecy that said that the Son of God would be killed. Isaiah 53, he was bruised for our transgressions. He was uh, striped for our iniquities. And the punishment that was laid on him will bring us peace. And so he's still the cornerstone, even though they killed him. And so back here in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says in verse 6, Behold, I lay in Zion, that's the city of David, that's Jerusalem, a chief cornerstone, chosen and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So we got mixed metaphors here, but he's, you know, the stone or the son that came to re get the fruit from the vineyard, they killed. The chief cornerstone of their faith, the foundation of what they believed, the fulfillment of all the prophecy, they killed him. The builders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they rejected him and said, nope, he can't be the Messiah because he's calling himself God. He's not shutting down the Romans. He's not doing all the things that we think God should do, and therefore it can't be him. What they didn't understand is that there would be a first coming where he would deal with sin, 
and redeem us from the slavery of sin. And at the second coming, he'll set up his kingdom and deal with all the unrighteous rulers and kingdoms of the world. He'll buy back creation itself even. And he'll redeem the world that we live in. And so the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And to those, he's saying to those who are disobedient, he will become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And if there's anything you notice is that those that were religious leaders in the day that Jesus showed up, they were stumbled by him. They were offended by him. But he says in verse 8, as he closes that verse, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. So the idea is for us who believe, if we are disobedient to the word, we're going to stumble. And the word of God, instead of being the cornerstone, will be a rock of offense and he will crush us to powder. There will be judgment. And so verse 9, he contrasts. He says, but you... So to those of you that are obedient by the power of the Spirit, he says, but you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are His. When was the last time that you were excited about the fact that you are Jesus's? He owns you. You're not your own anymore if you're in Christ, but that you were bought with a precious price, and He is excited that you're his. Are you excited that you're his? I'm not talking about just the feeling of excitement, but does it bring you comfort and hope that you're the Lord's? Does that mean anything to you? You're a chosen generation. God chose you. You're a royal priesthood. You represent God to the world you live in, the people that you know. You're a holy nation. You're his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. You're not going to get what you deserve. You've obtained mercy. Everything that you deserve for your past, everything that you deserve for the things, the sins you committed yesterday, you've obtained mercy. We just have to repent and believe. He says, you who once were not a people. He's speaking to a group of people that in many cases would never know each other, wouldn't get along with each other. They had religious people. They had political zealots. They had blasphemers. They were all together. They had slaves and slave owners. They had kings. They had royalty. But they also had peasants. People had nothing. They've all been made a people with a common inheritance and a common Father, we're of God's kingdom now, first and foremost. I'm an American, but I'm a Christian first. And that territory cannot be cut down and be made less than. So he says here, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and as pilgrims, he's talking to them, he's, he's the reason I have this image up here for you, this big suitcase with all these places I've been, and then the world, he's saying to them, you are strangers in the world you live in. And if you feel like you're strangers because you're trusting in something that no one else can see, good. Now, that causes tension, right? That causes uncomfortableness 
because the things that you value, hopefully above other things, will seem weird to the world. And they should. It, be, be careful. If all men speak well of you, it's probably because you fear man more than you fear God. But if you're living in the fear of God, your life will look different than the rest of the world. And that's what he's going to say. We represent God to the world. And so he says, I beg you as sojourners or as foreigners and as pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. If you abstain from fleshly lusts, guess what? You're benefiting yourself. Do it for yourself. Obey God's simplest commands for you. He says, the fleshly lust that you give into, the things that you know that are sin, that you just go, well, it feels good, so I'm going to do it, even though I know God's word says not to, you're only hindering yourself. You're only hurting yourself. And we'll get to past that because it hurts others. But first and foremost, in your own salvation, if you feel like you're trying to walk in salvation, you've got a bag of bricks on your back, then put it down. Abstain from fleshly lusts the things that war against the soul. Having your conduct honorable. And then he says, among the Gentiles. Gentiles are just anybody that's outside of the faith. For the Jewish people, it's outside of the Jewish covenant. But for us, it's outside of the covenant that we have in Jesus. No longer having to follow all these works, but instead being set free even from the law because it's been lived out for us. He says, Abstain from fleshly lust. Number one, because it benefits you. They war against your soul when you give in to them. Number two, because you need to have conduct that's honorable amongst those who do not believe. That when you speak, excuse me, that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may, because of your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Remember, he said, you're, you're his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the light. The main purpose of our lives is actually to proclaim the goodness of God. And you cannot proclaim the goodness of God about how he set you free from sin if you continue in it. You cannot. Because you won't even be able to do it with a clear conscience because you'll know that you're just lying. But when God sets you free and you give him the ability, and you, you allow him to, to crucify those dead, sinful habits in your life, um, it'll set you free. You'll have more joy. But number two, um, you'll have conduct that's honorable among Gentiles. And even when they speak evil of you, they won't be able to, none of those charges will stick because it won't be true. So it takes away fear, takes away worry, guilt, shame. You won't be hiding in a corner anymore. You'll just want to proclaim the goodness of God because he's faithful. So um, the ultimate idea is that his will will be done in the world. So in light of what he said, these good works he talks about, which they observe, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. Your enemies, those who speak unwell of you, When you abstain from fleshly lusts and instead give God the ability to direct your attitude and your life, guess what? Your enemies may not get it, but they won't have anything to say evil against you. And when they do, they'll have to glorify God because they'll recognize that they're not true. But 
together we represent his will be done on earth. And I want to read something for you real quick because I think our faith in the United States church uh, particularly is something that we've made an individual thing. And while faith alone in Christ alone is an individual thing, it's not all that there is. I was reading Warren Wearsby this week and I took a screenshot of it. He said this, It is important that we, as God's priests, maintain our separated position in the world. We are called to be separate from the world. We're not supposed to be like them. We must not be isolated because the world needs our influence and witness, but we must not permit the world to infect or change us. Separation from the world is not isolation. It is contact with the world without contamination. I'll read that again. Separation is not isolation. It is contact without contamination. We should be affecting the world, not be affected by the world. But then he goes on to say something I hadn't really thought about, but I think is a problem. He says, The fact that each individual believer can go to God personally and offer spiritual sacrifices should not encourage selfishness or individualism on our part. We are priests, yes, but we are priests together serving the same high priest. The idea is, as living stones, we have no strength in and of ourselves. If you've got a, a brick in your yard, and it's tied to the cornerstone, but there's no other bricks, there's no house for the Holy Spirit. The temple, if it's one brick, has no place for the Holy Spirit to reside. But we, being built up as the temple of the Holy Spirit, when we are all fitted and joined together, there's a place where people can come and experience the true and living God. Now, that doesn't mean that we're always together, but that means that we are unified by the Spirit and we unify the same God. So the God that I see living through Drew isn't a different God than I see living through Steve or any of our others. We're unified in what we believe in God by the Spirit of God who gives us unity and joins us together. He's the glue that holds us together, if you will. But then he says, the fact that there is but one high priest and heavenly mediator indicates unity among the people of God. While we must maintain our personal walk with God, we must not do it at the expense of other Christians by ignoring or neglecting them. We're meant to build each other up. So this togetherness theme is important. We cannot live the Christian faith alone. I promise you. You can live it alone, but you will not be as good as you could be with all of us together. And so uh, together we represent His will be done on earth. And since I'm out of time this morning, I'm going to give you a little spoiler. His will being done on earth isn't just with spiritual practices or religious services or Christmas, or Easter, or Wednesday morning prayer meeting if we have it, or Tuesday afternoon Bible study. God's character and His reality in our lives is shown outside of those more than it is in. That's where we get equipped. Here's where we get equipped to live as we're called, but outside is where we get to actually put rubber to the road. And so as citizens, as servants, as spouses, It all matters. And so this next part of the chapter, verse 13 through about chapter 3, verse uh, 6, 
we're going to see that his will being done on earth starts with us as individuals. It starts with us obeying in the daily. And so we'll start talking about that next week. Father, thank you so much for Peter. Thank you for the humbleness that came out of him failing a lot publicly. Thank you for his willingness to be used by you and to give his whole life to you. Thank you for his heart to encourage the believers that had been scattered among the Roman Empire. There was a lot said today, Lord. I pray that you would help everybody to forget all the stuff I shouldn't have said and to remember all the stuff that you're trying to show them as individuals. I thank you for the word of God, how it's able to meet us where we're at. Lord, help us to lay aside the things that ensnare us and make us a wrong representation to the world and actually, in some ways, making it harder for people to understand and know you. And Lord, instead, help us to build one another up. Help us to speak things into people's lives, our brothers and sisters in Christ especially. Help us to celebrate each other in the ways that we are doing well. And also to bear one another's burdens in the ways that we struggle. To encourage one another, to lay aside the stuff that's going to hinder us from true abundant life in the sun. Help us to lay aside the things that are hindering our witness where we work, in our homes, with those that we're going to see on vacation, with those that we're going to see in the, in the workplace or those who we're getting upset with on the road. Lord, would you work in all these areas of our lives because without your Spirit, we can't change a thing. We just can't. But by, empowered by your Spirit, all things are possible. And so, Lord... Um, as we look next week at being citizens and being servants and being spouses and being sons and daughters, Lord, um, would you help us to be truly your witnesses in this world, that we would go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, that people would come to us and want what we have because they see of the transforming power of the gospel in our lives. Lord, make us right with you and be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.